The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Of course, your computations would inevitably lead to a total description of the parabolic intersection of dimension with dimension. Mr. Spock, you have a remarkably logical and analytical mind. Thank you. I love you. However, I hate you. But I'm identical in every way with Alice 27. Yes, of course. That is exactly why I hate you. Because you are identical. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 12th, 2015. I'm Robert Vaughn. And I'm Bob Metz. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no. We're not right wing. We're just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where you can always write us at justwritemedia.org and to let us know your opinions. We got a few of those opinions expressed about last week's show, and we'll share one later on. Um, whereas, Just Right is never broadcast on Friday, and whereas tomorrow is the second of three Friday the 13th in the year 2015, believe it or not, and whereas it would be bad luck not to discuss it, <laughs> our theme today ranges from the allure of the irrational to superstition itself. And Robert, I think uh, you wanted to kick that whole theme off today. In fact, you're the one that inspired this whole thing when you first discussed the idea with me. Well, I hope it wasn't because I'm irrational. But well, uh, <laughs> yeah. well I've, known, I've known you to be. <laughs> yeah. What? What? What was that? You forget, I'm just right. Yeah. Um, no, I was doing some thinking about thinking um, over the week and came Ouch. up with a bit of a theme here to uh, start the ball rolling. All cretins are liars, <laughs> goes the famous paradox of Epimenides, the cretin. To rephrase the paradox, you could say, I am lying, or everything I say is a lie. In his book, Godel Escher Bach, Douglas Hofstetter describes such paradoxes as strange loops where the person who fruitlessly tries to solve this riddle ends back where he started from. Have a listen to this. The following sentence is false. The preceding sentence is true. Now, without giving these sentences much thought, one might see nothing irrational about them, especially if we were to take them one by one. The following sentence is false is a grammatically correct sentence using concepts we can understand, such as following, sentence, and false. We know what these terms mean, and they make sense in most contexts. The same applies to the second sentence. We know what the word preceding means and true mean. The sentences are like the Escher drawing of two hands, one drawing the other, drawing the one. The sentences are in a closed, self-referential loop. And the tendency for most of us upon reading or, or hearing these two sentences together is to accept their validity. It's only after we devote a moment to focus and think about the meaning 
of the two sentences put together that we conclude that taken together they are meaningless. We conclude that the sentences can't both be true and we move on. There's a contradiction there. There's nothing to deal with. Let's get on with it. If you were to meet a man who says to you that he can reconcile both sentences and that he understands how they can both be correct, you might do one of three things. One, you might dismiss the man's claims, having yourself concluded that the sentences taken together are meaningless. Two, you might doubt your own thinking about the sentences and and try once again to make sense of them, thinking you may have missed something because, hey, here's a fellow who says he understands them. Or three, you might take the man at his word and conclude that you are either too stupid to understand what he claims to know or are simply too lazy to work it out for yourself. Now, unfortunately, the world is replete with both kinds of men, the ones who claim they understand the meaningless and those who tacitly believe them. What is the sound of one hand clapping, goes the common Zen koan. It doesn't take a genius to know that this question is meaningless, since to clap means to strike two hands together with a sudden sharp sound. Yet there are those who pretend to reach what they call enlightenment, and I'm doing some air quotation marks here, or understanding by contemplating this question. Another question of this type, but is yet to develop a religion around it, is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? There's nothing to contemplate here. The existence of an unstoppable force precludes the existence of an immovable object. That stands to reason. One of my favorites is rooted in the Catholic fate, faith. Well, the maybe na- you meant fate. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, the nature of their God is that of a trinity, Father, Son, and a Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. This triune is often depicted in a triangle with each of the entities in the corner of the triangle joined to the word God in the center. The relationship of one entity to the other and God is then spelled out between each element such that the Father is not the Son and is not the Holy Ghost, but is God. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Ghost, but is God. And the Holy Ghost is neither the Father nor the Son, but is God. To put it in some sort of logic, A is D, B is D, C is D, but A is not B, and B is not C, and C is not A. This, of course, is just as illogical and meaningless as any Zen koan or strange looping paradox question. A is A is A is A. That is logic. That is reason. That is rationality. The triune, the trinity, that's irrational. The priest who tries to sell you on the separate but equal nature of his God is no better than a witch doctor blowing smoke in your eyes to cure your myopia. Yet there are over a billion Catholics who take the word of a priest as, well, gospel. They take it tacitly, without question or reasoning. They fail to think or refuse to think. Why is that? I believe that part of the reason is that thinking is a deliberate act of consciousness requiring effort and focus. It's just like when I said those two sentences, the following sentence is false, the preceding sentence is true. Mm -hmm. You have to focus in order to try to understand that they are meaningless. Every one of us spends a very large part of the day not thinking or out of focus. We can read a page in a novel and have to go back and reread it because we weren't really concentrating or focusing on the meaning of the words. We just read them. 
We went through the physical process, but we didn't focus our mind to understand. Have you ever taken a shower and wondered near the end if you shampooed your hair? I have. Oh, man, I do that so often. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) You Hmm. feel your head, then you think back. Yeah, yeah, I did that before. Yeah, okay, let's move on. I did wash it. The motions of showering. Or worse, when you go and do it twice. And you're supposed to uh, do it twice, I think, at least according to the directions. The motions of showering had become automatic and did not require any deliberate focus or concentration. So you spend your time shampooing your hair, but actually thinking about something else. So thinking is a process of deliberation, of focus, and it requires effort. It's not automatic. There's nothing necessarily wrong, however, about acting automatically when it comes to questions of a fundamental nature, though, such as the purpose of life or the nature of the universe. There is no excuse for laziness. Oh, I'm going to believe this guy. I don't have time to think about the meaning of life, so to speak. If you want to be an automatic Catholic and go to church every Sunday and recite the Lord's Prayer by rote without giving any consideration to the nature of God, and if there really is one, then you're acting, I would say, immorally. Now, what do I say mean when I say immoral? Most religionists attribute immoral acts to what, Bob? What's immoral? Sex, it's always exactly. sex. You just say sex, the word sex, morality, sex. it's all sex. All about sex. Yeah. Sometimes violence, you know, stealing, killing, that kind of and thing. And it could be applicable in an in, in uh, isolated yes. situation, but yes. it's not an exclusive yeah. thing, that's for sure. But that's not what I mean about morality or immorality. It has nothing to do with sex in this particular context. An immoral act, in the way I mean it, is to act against your nature. Uh, your nature is that of a rational being. So, to not use your rational faculty in matters of importance, in matters of life and death, is to act immorally. To rely on faith instead of reason is to act immorally. I distinguish between faith, though, and trust. I trust my car mechanic to fix my car, and my doctor to diagnose my illness, but I do not trust a priest to tell me about the nature of the universe, since any consistent application of reason to his premises clearly shows that he is wrong. A doctor of divinity is not going to help you to understand the universe. A PhD in physics might. In fact, any properly educated high school student should be able to see the arbitrary in the meaningless concepts and phrases around which the world's religions and cults are formed. Thinking is the process of concept formation and integration. When presented with concepts such as an arbitrary concept like God or the supernatural, one is stuck in a strange loop of illogic. Such fabricated concepts have no connection with reality and are therefore meaningless. What are you doing here? I want you to surrender. That is illogical. We can move more quickly than you. We are invulnerable to attack. We are much stronger. No, we are stronger. And I'll prove it to you. Can you harm a man that you're programmed to serve? No. But you already have, Norman Laddie. Human beings do not survive on bread alone, you poor soulless creature, but on the nourishments of liberty. For what indeed is a man without freedom, not but a mechanism trapped in the cogwheels of eternity? You offer us only well-being. Food and drink and happiness mean nothing to us. We must be about our job. 
suffering in torment and pain, laboring without end. Dying and crying and lamenting over our burdens. Only this, this way can we be happy. That is contradictory. It is not logical. Mr. Spock, explain why not. Logic is a little tweeting bird chirping in a meadow. Logic is a wreath of pretty flowers which smell bad. Are you sure your circuits are registering correctly? Your ears are green. He's dead. You cannot have killed him. You have no weapons. Scotty. Scotty's dead. He had too much happiness. But now he's happier, he's dead. And we'll miss him. Let us hear it for our poor dead friend. <laughs> <laughs> what is a man but that lofty spirit, that sense of enterprise, that devotion to something that cannot be sensed cannot be realized, but only dreamed the highest reality. Brilliant! Bravo! Bravo, Captain! How'd you like it? That is irrational, illogical. Dreams are not real. Our logic is to be illogical. That is our advantage. Mr. Spock, it is time. The explosive. Very well, Captain. Explosive! Don't panic, women and children first. Isn't that too much for our purposes? I believe that is the correct amount, Captain. Mr. Mudd, are you ready? Aye, aye. Detonator. Fuse. Primer. Mashing. There is no explosive. No? Observe. tells you is a lie. Remember that. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Now listen to this carefully, Norman. I am lying. You say you are lying, but if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth, but you cannot tell the truth because everything you say is a lie, but you lie, you tell the truth, but you cannot, for you lie. Illogical. Illogical. Please explain. You are human. Only humans can explain their behavior. Please explain. I am not programmed to respond in that area. So listen to that clip, Bob. It seems that the only purpose of the irrational is to confuse our robot overlords. To short-circuit them. Yes, that's to, right. To uh, give them contradictions. It's funny you said there's a contradiction when you started off the show. And I'm thinking, gee, that fits right into what I'll be talking about in my 
my part of the show later on, how contradictions, when you deal with them, you end up with nothing. You said, you know, you have a contradiction, therefore you end up with nothing. Yeah. That's literally true, and I'm going to demonstrate how literally true that is. I often take on religion when I'm talking about the mm-hmm. irrational, but religion doesn't have no. a monopoly on the irrational. Much of today's theoretical physics can take on the same mystical and illogical qualities of the most obscure religion. Application of quantum mechanics on large scales, for example, is one such case. And Schrodinger's paradox of the cat being both alive and dead at the same time is the prime example of illogic. Much of quantum mechanics defies the causal universe we live in and is therefore illogical in the normal sense, although it admittedly is a good predictor of phenomena which cannot be properly described in classical physics. There lies a paradox, I tell you. Unfortunately, I'm not a physicist, so I'm going to have to leave that discussion for more of an expert. Though I'm not going to tacitly accept their opinion on the matter. Politics is another area rife with the irrational, from the bizarre actions and ideas of the progressives when it comes to things such as economics and the environment, immigration, law, and moral relativism, to name just a few areas of interest, to the bizarre, moribund attitudes of conservatives to pers- on personal behaviors such as taking of mind-altering drugs, drugs, sexual preferences, and personal belief systems. The latest irrational craze of climate change is a perfect example of irrationality. And it's not a simple matter to claim that the people involved in positing anthropogenic climate change are being irrational because, like the sentences I mentioned earlier, the following sentence is false, the preceding sentence is true, each observation and report of the science community on climate may make sense, but taken together compiled by bureaucrats at the United Nations and and put out there by people and politicians like Al Gore, there is a contradiction. And it was a treat to see Christopher Monckton analyze the climate data from a logical viewpoint in his lecture here at Western University three years ago, which I filmed, and it's on our YouTube channel. He took an objective view of the data, pointing out some glaring flaws some of which are innocent errors of perspective and some which he described as being fraudulent to the point of criminality. Much of today's irrationality in religion, philosophy, and politics may be perfectly innocent, but too much of it is just downright fraudulent to the point of being criminal, especially in its act, you know, the, the, the result in actions. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that a a majority of the population tacitly agree with the irrational in politics as expounded by politicians and equally ignorant media. As with religion, they acquiesce to the professional opinion and give little thought to matters of great importance. They may spend days or months shopping for a car or a house, crunching the finances and considering every detail of the purchase, but when it comes to who to vote for in an election, they may not spend any more time in the decision than they do deciding to watch what to watch on television that night. At least it seems that way. And it seems that while we are endowed at birth with the ability to reason, the choice of when to use that amazing faculty is severely limited. Having the ability to reason does not necessarily make us a rational animal. The ability to apply deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and even abductive reasoning should be part of any high school curriculum. One should at least know the difference in these thought processes so that, in the words of 
Lord Christopher Monkton. One can identify rot when one sees it. That's right. Deductive reasoning gives rise to a true conclusion if given true assumptions. Example, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That has to be true, given the proposition, all men are mortal, and the proposition Socrates is a man being true. Inductive reasoning, the kind I think that we probably use the most, does not necessarily yield true results, but only probable or likely results. All the dogs I've seen have four legs, therefore all dogs have four legs. Abductive reasoning goes from observation to the inference of a hypothesis to explain the observation. We sometimes call it an educated guess. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking about you talked about. I, I remember when I was a kid, a friend of mine had a three legged dog. He lost yeah. a leg. And guess what that dog's name was? Spock. <laughs> <laughs> Spock. <laughs> Why? Did it have anything to do with his leg? Uh, no. Maybe his ears? I don't know, but that was his <laughs> name. I, just, I still remember it. Just, you just made me think of that just now. <laughs> but you can see how inductive mm-hmm. reasoning can be wrong, even though your observations and your reasoning is sound. You know, you can't really say that all dogs have four legs. You can say that it's most likely, since I, every dog I've seen has four legs, it's most likely that all yeah. dogs have four legs. I can tell you one thing. A three-legged dog can run just about as fast as a four-legged dog. I've seen it's YouTube amazing. videos. Yeah. <laughs> Much of science begins with abductive reasoning, following, uh, you know, followed by experimentation to either bolster or reject the hypothesis. But the scientist must always realize that his conclusions may be incorrect. That's and what most he's always working are. with, right? Yeah, that's that's their their assumption. That's yeah. That's a tough tough, you know, road to haul. Really, if you think about it, always going in expecting to be proven incorrect. Yes rather than asserting your correctness, which is sort of the field of faith, and forget about what, what facts run in the way. <laughs> yeah. they, they call it, they yeah. want to re- reject the null hypothesis. Yeah. Now, what method of logic does a religionist or a New Age guru use to back up their claims? Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. He says to his people that they were inscribed by the very finger of God, of an omnipotent, omniscient, supernatural being. Imagine that. Comes down from the mountain. Hey, look at this. Hmm. Written by God. (laughs) Moses, being upset that many of his people don't believe him, smashes the tablets and has to chisel them out again himself. What conclusion could a sane man infer from this behavior and these words? One, that some supernatural intelligent force called God that no one but Moses has seen or heard did as Moses claimed. Or two, Moses chiseled out the commandments himself and falsely claimed that they were written by his God-being. If you were given the first edition of the Ten Commandments, knowing it to be the only copy of God's own handwriting, would you smash the tablets in a fit of pique? I don't think so. What if I told you that there are two elements that make up the universe? That which is seen and that which is unseen. It sounds a lot like René Descartes, um, what he called the extended and the unextended. Now, what if I told you that I know this to be true, not from any sensory data, but from some personal intuition or personal enlightenment that you obviously do not possess? I then went on to claim that this unseen element exists in everything, both animate and inanimate, so that I and my superior wisdom know that even rocks are living and have a spirituality. 
Sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? (laughs) What if I then claimed that I had been alive for four billions of years before evolution and I'll be alive for billions of years after evolution? Now, most sane people would dismiss me as a kook and rue the fact that there just doesn't seem to be enough psychiatric beds available these days. Now, many, out of politeness, might ask for me to explain my fantastic assertion, my arbitrary, and provide evidence to back it up. And then many would hand over their money to me and go to my lectures and buy my books. It's too bad that I can consider myself an honest man, or else I'd be rich. Satish Kumar is the editor of Resurgence, an ecological magazine at the sandal-wearing end of the Green Movement. And he counts amongst his many fans Prince Charles and the Dalai Lama. I represent the entire history of evolution. I was present in the beginning, the first Big Bang, and I'll be here for billions of years to come. World is made of two elements. One element is visible element. The other aspect of creation is invisible dimension, things we cannot see. So, so what is that element which is invisible? I call it spiritual. When you go in a room, you say, there is a good feeling here. There is a spirit of ah, the room. Well, now you've changed to something rather different. The, the spirit is a very big and very holistic and very inclusive word. It is not defined in a one particular way. So when you go in a room, you can say, the tree has a spirit. A, a rock has a spirit. It's a living rock for me. Nature without spirit cannot exist. Like a tree cannot exist without the sunlight, it cannot exist without rain, it cannot exist without soil, also it cannot exist without the tree-ness. The tree-ness is the spiritual quality. Or the rockness. Or the rockness. When you talk about the rockness or the quality of a rock, uh, I can see as a scientist a rock has hardness and things like that, but I think that's not quite what you mean. Um, it sounds as though what you do mean is something imposed by the human observer. A rock is, 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 but, is but atoms. But there is a rock quality in the rock. Well, you, th- that's a matter of assertion. I mean, you, you are now simply asserting that. Asserting, I'm understanding it. This is my yeah. understanding. Okay. Some may understand more fully than others, but it is not imposed. It is there. It all sounds very poetic, but it's not reality. Like priests, mullahs and rabbis, New Age mystics ceaselessly attempt to fill gaps in human understanding with fabricated meaning. taught us anything is to avoid contact with solids whenever possible. Solids, our name, for monoforms like yourself, who will never know the joys of the Great Link. I don't intend to stay long. We value our isolation. Yes, of course. Tell me, Odo, have you made good use of the Arboretum? In what way? By assuming the various shapes surrounding you. Why would I do that? To become a thing, 
is to know a thing. To assume its form is to begin to understand its existence. Understand it? How? Living among the solids has damaged you far worse than I realized. It has left you ignorant of the gifts you possess. Then teach me what I need to know. I'll do what I can. But in the end, this is another journey you'll have to make on your own. And when it is over, you'll be ready to take your place in the Great Link. Are you all right? I have spent the last two hours shape-shifting. Rocks, flowers, trees. I have been everything in that garden. And? And nothing. Oh, I can become a rock, all right, but I have no more of an idea what it is to be a rock than I did before. I'm not really sure what that means. I'm not sure either, and that's... unfortunate. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to return to my bucket. <laughs> Robert and I are just here laughing our heads off trying to contain ourselves. Wasn't that ridiculous? Uh, what we just heard uh, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine was a literal interpretation of the mystical musings of Satish Kumar, who we heard before, the editor of Resurgent which uh, I thought was funny, the way Dawkins called that, an ecological magazine at the sandal-wearing end of the green movement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Says Kumar, creation consists of the visible, physical and seen, and the invisible spirit, although he doesn't define it, the treeness and the rockness. <laughs> I call it the rockness monster, okay? <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But, you know, Dawkins said it sounds poetic, but it's not reality. New Age mystics ceaselessly attempt to fill gaps in human understanding with fabricated meaning, end quote. I know what he means, but I kind of disagree with Dawkins on this last point, because I see no meaning whatever in what was said by Kumar, fabricated or otherwise. It was pure gibberish. Treeness and rockness? Are, are, are you, like, kidding me? But no, not only do the likes of Prince Charles and Dalai Lama apparently think like this, but though, so did some of the writers within the Star Trek franchise, as we just heard. But they did us a favor. Even an irrational script can't hide some basic realities, no matter how hard you might try, because no quote-unquote reality, even a fictional self-contained one, can tolerate a contradiction. Contradictions cannot exist. They do not exist. Not even in fiction or the whole story would just simply fall apart. If a contradiction could exist, its net result would be a literal nothing. There would be no meaning, like nothing, just like you said at the opening of the show there, Robert. And nothing is what needs to exist before anything that we can call creation. And then there's a character, Odo, you know. Um, I always called him Odious Odo. I learned to accept him and live with him, but I never did like the fictional character of Odo, and not because of the actor who played him or because of the scripts, but because of his identity. In the world of Star Trek, a changeling was almost the equivalent of throwing a superhero into their midst, a character with superhuman powers and superhuman abilities, uh, which Odo possessed. His very existence as an entity challenged my own uh, very necessary-to-watch-TV suspension of disbelief because I was being asked to suspend way too much disbelief in his case, and yeah. that was always my problem, you know. Simon and Garfunkel could certainly get away with singing I am a rock, I am an island, 
because none of us took it literally, and we understood that Paul Simon was writing about isolation as a means of shielding oneself from pain. That, that idea was in that clip, too, if you heard it. But the idea of literally changing from one shape to another is just silly. But the idea of experiencing each shape as if uh, in adapting to that shape, you're actually experiencing what it's like to be a rock or a tree or a chair or any darn shape you please, please to invent is, is, I find it offensive. <laughs> Odo's character as a changeling breaks the fundamental law of identity. Now think about this. If Odo really did experience being a rock, then while he was a rock, how would he ever remember or know that he's a rock in order to change back to, to what he was before if he was really experiencing being a rock, right? And if he could remember being other things while he was being a rock, then there's no way he could argue that he, that he was experiencing what being a rock was like. <laughs> Rocks have no ability to animate, nor to possess consciousness, even at the most primitive and fundamental level. You know, and I'm thinking, well, what if he adopted a shape that didn't exist in nature? How would those shapes feel? How does it feel like to be a triangle or, a, you know, some other weird shape that doesn't exist in nature? You know, it comes back to the isosceles triangle is green and the roundness of a triangle, all these contradictory terms. There is no conscious experience involved in being unconscious. A liquid intelligence, clearly symbolic only of a collective, Life requires physical cohesion in a physical form in order for it to be considered life. Another objection I have to characters like Changelings is that they give the writers of the series easy shortcuts to problem solving and story resolutions that would otherwise require a little more effort and more of a rational and logical and imaginative outcome, don't you think? Yeah, I, I do. I hate, I hate those shortcuts. I remember Space 1999, yeah. the, the character Maya, she could change into anything too. Mm -hmm. and, and if you've got a character that can basically change into a... Uh, a really strong monster and defeat all your enemies. <coughs> what an easy out. Not only that, what, is, what does it do to you as a viewer? Suddenly you don't care as much about the show. You don't care as yeah. much about the characters. You don't take their their crisis or their dilemma they have. You don't take it too seriously because, oh, well, something's going to come along and get them out of this. Yeah. Somebody will blink and it'll be all over. But if you know they've got to work their way out, then you're, then you're glued to that screen. You want to know how that's going to resolve itself. Yes. And speaking of Star Trek and contradictions, last week we paid a tribute to the late Leonard Nimoy for the bulk of the show, and we received, among others, the following comment by listener Doug, who wrote to us, and he said, and I'm quoting here, I think you mentioned on Just Right that the Star Trek Society might be something with which Ayn Rand might agree. If you did, I can't imagine that would be the case. Star Trek is rather socialist, I thought. For example, Picard says, we've eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. Which is weird because, for example, who says you get to fly the Enterprise? Whose ship is that? Who decided to build it? And so on. Also, Spock says, is famous, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. I'll stop there in case you're thinking, oh my God, is he going to go on for pages of this stuff? We were really just doing a little tribute to tribute piece to Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> In case it isn't obvious, I love Star Trek, he writes, and Leonard Nimoy. I've seen all the episodes of all versions, including the original Star Trek, roughly a billion times. <laughs> Data is my favorite character. When I objectively explain emotions or love or things like that to my kids, my wife rolls her eyes and says something like, Thank you, Data, for that riveting destruction of the concept of love, <laughs> end quote. And thanks to Doug. I wonder if Doug was at the first Toronto Star Trek convention that you and I, Robert, attended, where Brent Spiner was the main yes. attraction. Yeah. Um, 
But I wrote him back and I, I had to agree with what he said, you know, and he's quite right about the examples he cited. And uh, Robert, you and I tore into some of these bizarre exceptions oh, many yes. times in the past. And back in 2009, Robert and I paid a tribute to the Star Trek franchise. And, um, you know, I think <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd hear a lot of the comments that, w that were just raised by Doug on our episode 129 that we broadcast back in uh, November 19, 2009. And we gave a philosophical and cultural overview of the whole Star Trek series. That was a fun show. And uh, one of our topics there, you'll note, was called Mostly Right about Star Trek, you know, and we were referring to things like the Prime Directive, individual rights, the hero, and the legacy. And there was another broadcast of Just Right I recall doing. Unfortunately, I don't know the specific episode, but it was strictly about economic issues, and I recall just tearing into the sheer stupidity of, of Star Trek's, or I think it was Picard's actual concept of a society with no money, to say nothing of the inherent contradiction within the Star Trek world itself. I mean, no money, really? Then what the heck is latinum and all those other means of exchange that they use on the Enterprise? What are those people doing in, in Quark's bar? What are they gambling with? Just for fun? Just chips? Why even bother to gamble if you don't need money? And it, you, see, you can see how it's a ridiculous concept even within the Star Trek franchise. It's a contradiction to everything else we see within the series itself. And then it doesn't make sense. It's got to be consistent. And that was not consistent. And so... That was one of the issues. And as to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, uh, this was an assertion made in the movie Star Trek II and was wildly reversed to read the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many in Star Trek III. It seems to me, at least in the world of Star Trek, that this was never intended to be an absolute, but relative to the values in question at the time. It can and did go both ways, and I recall once Guinan explaining to Wesley Crusher in a show, and I'm paraphrasing here, sometimes you have to be selfish before the consideration of others, and I recall playing that on the show as well. There were, of course, some truly god-awful Star Treks that completely rubbed against the grain of individualism and freedom, and Robert, you and I discussed one of them, the empath, remember? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, in the first series, it was all about sacrifice and torture, and it was torturous watching it. <laughs> it really was. And, but in the main, Star Trek's sense of life and values, and I recall Kirk actually using the term individual rights and not human rights as such, um, they were pretty much on the mark, and I can't really fault them for that. And um, I think that people like Doug and myself, and perhaps you, Robert, became fans of the series and um, because of that, because we understood those values and we understood the, the, the larger picture. But we did do some other shows on Star Trek. For those who are interested, you can go online and just check out Just Right episodes number 273, 303, 321, and 345. Each of those shows contains something about the Star Trek series and some of our commentaries on that. So our thanks to Doug for listening to the show and for writing us. Now, as we slide into our next break, the next thing you'll be hearing is from the TV series Sliders. And this episode took a kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach to the hippie, boom, hippie movement of the 1960s, which was apparently still in w well, alive and well in the 90s world into which the sliders slid. Killer Groovy, man. Profits have arrived. All our problems are over. I am skid. This is Seeker. 
Mrs. Fling. Fling? Skid told me I was his latest fling, so I changed my name to prove my love. Well, can you guys tell us where we are? You're at our commune, man. Just outside of San Francisco. San Francisco, man, that's not bad, okay? You look tired. C come with us. We'll take you to a loving place where you can rest and be refreshed. September, down from the sky, man. What more do you want? It's true, Trent. We saw it. So we got two unearthly prophets disguised as humans sleeping in our tents. What are we supposed to do when they wake up? We're going to act normal. We're going to keep an eye and an ear open. Because every word they utter could have a profound multiple meaning. What happens when you die? Well, I can't say I've never died. Oh, she's immortal. Oh, oh wow. Of course she is, man. I could have told you that. Wow. We feel our movement will sweep the world. All people will eventually reject commercialism. Right. And adopt the concepts of love, peace, and freedom. The summer of love will never end. <laughs> Please tell us that's true. Yes, it's, it's true. Oh, Thank you. Man. Thank you. Oh, man. <laughs> Good morning. What are you heating the toaster for? The toast won't go down. Five. Five? <laughs> so what? That's the number you've got to say if you want to make toast. Five. I don't believe you. How do you want your eggs? Fried or scrambled? Uh, scrambled. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> your toast is burning. Five. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Drucker, uh, do you carry electric toasters? Well, I thought you had one. Uh, well, I have, but it's not working right. The bread doesn't go down. You try saying three to it? <laughs> Maybe he's got an eight. <laughs> no, I've got a five. I've never heard of a five. Uh, that must be a discontented model. Yeah, yeah, all the newer models start with eight, except 29B. That works on seven and a half. <laughs> seven and a... Does the bread go up and down when you say five to it? Yes, but... I thought you said it wasn't working right. Well, when I first bought it, you, you, you put the bread in, it goes down and gets toasted, and then it comes up. Without saying anything? That's right. Well, you ought to brought it in then. That's when it wasn't working right. If you don't like five, Mr. Douglas, why don't you bring it in? Maybe I can tinker it into some other number. No, five is... Uh... I'll see you later. <laughs> if you've never watched an episode of the 60s hit show Green Acres, it's really worth a smile. 
And uh, the sense of humor in that show was really something off the wall. Poor Oliver Wendell Douglas, played by Eddie Albert, was always a straight man surrounded by irrationality in a community that was slowly making him doubt his own sanity from episode <laughs> to episode. And that was a great example of it, you know, the superstition of saying five to get that toaster to work. Uh, when I discovered this particular episode of Green Acres for today's show, I began by reviewing the titles of the various episodes. And I recall at the time in my mind I was thinking about Isabel Patterson's examples of irrationalist mar Marxist ideas expressed in language that was completely contradictory, which to her was the same as speaking about, quote, the roundness of a square or the greenness of a triangle. Completely meaningless terms. And sure enough, one of the Green Acres titles that stood out right away was one called A Square is Not a Round. And I'm thinking the writers of that show must have been really on the ball in thinking about metaphysical and epistemological uh, humor lines. You just didn't see that in a show anywhere. It was something very different. And I don't recall having watched that one before, and I don't think I've seen anything funnier in an off-the-wall sense for a long time. There were a lot of running jokes in that. The humor aside... <clears throat> I suspect there are a growing number of people who feel a little bit like Oliver Wendell Douglas in the very real world that we live in. Superstition and other irrational distractions apparently takes many forms and occupies the minds of even some of the best thinkers. Last week during my research for the Leonard Nimoy tribute, I actually found myself reading the works of H.L. Mencken of whom I'm generally a big fan, but who himself expressed many a viewpoint that I may not necessarily share. But whatever my agreements or disagreements with Mencken, I always found and appreciated his very honest and often humorous expression and his commitment to rationality, reason, and most of the principles that we might discuss on this show from time to time. I found it very welcome to, to, to see someone writing at that time. He was almost, in a way, Robert, the just right of his age. He was criticizing the irrationality around him, just in the way we do on this show today. Mencken always wrote about rejecting faith and accepting reason, yet apparently, as I discovered, he was superstitious. In the biography, Mencken, A Life, written by uh, author Fred Hobson, Hobson writes, quote, If Mencken had faith in anything, it was in the scientific method and in the ability of physicians to use that method to diagnose and treat human ills. But this most rational of men saw no contradiction in the fact that he was also superstitious. Indeed, he said on several occasions, it was rational that a man such as he, with no religious belief but with a deep need to explain things, would be superstitious. There existed in all humans a desire to find some order or meaning in events, even if that order did not truly exist, and in lieu of religion, superstition was such an ordering device. Besides, Mencken believed he had grounds. His father had died on Friday the 13th his mother also on the 13th. There's, there's a, that'll give you a pause. So therefore, for, everybody will die on the 13th. Well, That's inductive reasoning. But you can understand <laughs> what, what he's doing. You know, and this brings us back, right back to the observation made by Richard Dawkins in the first half of the show today, when he referred to mysticism being used to fill gaps in human understanding with fabricated meaning. But I don't think superstition is just about human understanding. Uh, when it is, then it can be properly considered irrational. It can also be about things that we perfectly understand but cannot control or alter, like the death of a loved one or one's own inevitable death, for example. So often, superstition, and perhaps faith even, can really just be coping techniques. 
not a rejection of knowledge or reason per se. For his part, H. L. Mencken certainly demonstrated that the seeming contradiction between his superstition and the rest of his ideas did not seem to affect the latter. Now, I had not read the following passage in light of the full context of other ideas expressed by Mencken, or simply read this passage in isolation. Um, or had I read this passage in isolation, I would never have considered his appreciation of capitalism to be in direct contradiction to his fear and inherent moral judgment against capitalism. It's a comment I hear some variant of over and over again, especially from conservative-type economists. And here is his quote. This is taken from the Minority Report uh, by H.L. Mencken. This was all written in the 1930s period, and uh, this was number 310 in that book. There was a whole bunch of series of, of comments. And he wrote, What we confront is not the failure of capitalism, but simply the failure of democracy. Capitalism has really been responsible for all the progress of the modern age. Better than any other system ever devised, it provides leisure for large numbers of superior men and so fosters the arts and the sciences. No other system ever heard of is so beneficial to invention. We owe to it every innovation that makes life secure and comfortable. Unfortunately, now here comes the seeming contradiction, like any other institution, for example, the Holy Church, capitalism tends to run amok when it's not restrained. And democracy provides inadequate means of keeping it in order. There is never any surety that democracy will throw up leaders competent to discern the true dangers of capitalism and able to remedy them in a prudent and rational manner. Thus we have vacillated between letting it run wild and trying to ruin it. Both courses are hazardous and ineffective, and it's hard to say which is more so. Now, what frustrated me about this latter comment is that he didn't give any examples. I could find no examples. It sounds like an arbitrary assertion. It does. And that, that was my first assumption. And he didn't say, like, what, what, why do you mean? What's the true dangers of capitalism? Particularly, you know, in light of his enthusiastic, unqualified support of capitalism and his immediate previous statement, you know, better than any other system devised. No other system so beneficial. We've got to stop that? That doesn't make <laughs> yeah. sense, right? I know he wasn't talking about some kind of wealth redistribution schemes by government because he was always abundantly clear how he despised and opposed such schemes. So that wasn't what he was getting at. Just what did Mencken mean when he used the word capitalism? It certainly wasn't the capitalism that you and I mean when we talk about it here on Just Right, Robert. And then I found the clue and the source of the problem. Mencken was using Karl Marx's definition of capitalism, which I discovered in another passage from the Minority Report, and that explains so much. Well, and here is wasn't that. Marx uh, the person who coined the yes, word capitalism? And, 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 to, and to, to badmouth it in a way. Yes. And then finally we, 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 we adopted it. It was really meant to turn what is not an ism into an ism. That was the attempt. But he, no, no, this is uh, Mencken writing about Marx. Quote, Marx defined capitalism as ownership of means of production. One man has the factory and another works in it. This is precisely the state of affairs in Russia. Remember, he's writing this in the 30s. In this country, the USA, the imaginative slave may at least hope, however vainly, to own a factory of his own someday. In Russia, it is impossible. The theory, of course, is that the people in general own everything. But this involves a false definition of ownership. The title may be in them legally, but their bosses are perpetual lessees who exercise all their rights. To believe that Russia has got rid of capitalism takes a special kind of mind. 
It's the same kind of mind that believes that Jonah swallowed the whale, <laughs> end quote. So you can see what he's talking about. There you have it. Mencken is using the term capitalism to mean business or the process of production only. Strictly looking at capitalism as an economic system when in fact capitalism is a moral system. And that moral code enshrined by law is the source of capitalism's success, however you define it. In fact, the last time I discussed some common misunderstandings about capitalism on our show just a few weeks back, I clearly made almost the same point as Mencken, that today's meaning of capitalism is being confused with business markets, which exist in all countries, whether communist, fascist, socialist, totalitarian, or free. But in all cases, the government gets to decide how much and when a market can or will be free of its own intervention or interference, and that's not capitalism. That specific freedom of economic trade is not yet an individual right, and until it is, what I call capitalism does not exist in, the, in its purest sense. And I'll say it again, we live in a completely socialist environment here in Canada, which means that the irrationality of socialist philosophy will eventually run its natural course. But I digress a bit. Mencken's definition of the word capitalism did not exactly match mine, and therefore I was led to a false conclusion about his position, right? But even so, trying to define capitalism strictly as economic business and production activity is incorrect. It is as meaningful as talking about the treeness and the rockness <laughs> of capitalism, <laughs> right? As Dawkins said, there's a huge gap in human understanding to be filled with fabricated meaning. And that is why words and definitions need to be precise in order to advance thinking and move civilization forward. Proper and correct concepts that correspond to reality are essential to the advancement of knowledge. And the subjectification of language to mean whatever you want is possibly the fastest way to collapse a civilization that I can think of. Which is why the progressives are constantly All, changing definitions. Always, always. H.L. Mencken died long before philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand appeared on the scene to define the source of capitalism's power and success. And she published her non-fiction book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, precisely to offer an accurate and understandable definition of that word. Yet Mencken managed to define civilized society in much the same way as Rand envisaged her ideal society. Like Rand, he seemed to recognize that it is the few atlases of society who are truly the rocks of civilization. And Mencken might even have created a Howard Rourke character had he been a fiction writer. I can't help but think of Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead when I read this following passage. And he writes again in the, in the Minority Report, The torch of civilization is carried not by miserable non-entities, but by a small minority of more restless and enterprising men. The members of this minority work in countless ways, and there is an immense variation in the nature and value of their several activities but all such activities tend in the same direction. What they always aim at, whether by design or only instinctively, is the improvement of human life on this earth. They strive to make it more rational, more secure, more abundant. Out of this class come not only all the men who enrich civilization, but also all those who safeguard it. They are the guardians of what civilization has gained in the past, as well as the begetters of all it gains today and will gain hereafter. Left to the great herd, or the great link, <laughs> civilization would destroy, would deteriorate inevitably, as it has deteriorated in the past, whenever the supply of impatient and original men 
has fallen off. This is the true secret of the rise and fall of cultures. And with that, I'll leave it. That's it for today, Robert. So join us again next week, folks, when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be one of these chickens is laying square eggs. Mr. Douglas, that's impossible. Well, it's not impossible. Yes, it is impossible. Would you like to see one? One what? A square egg. Oh, you still on that kick? I'll show you one. I knew my girls won't let you down. Yeah, now, which one was in this cage? The one that laid the square egg. I know, which one? Which one of you were... Uh, oh, you miserable... This is the most frustrating... What are you trying to do? Keep it a secret? You know the old saying. You can lead a horse over the water, but you can't make him think. You can lead a horse...